I hardly ever do this, but I'm going to podcast twice in a day. I found myself with the entire weekend with no work to catch up on and with the proposal finished uh, for my second book, the book proposal. It's not done technically, but it's in the hands of my agent. And so, uh, you know, at the moment I had nothing to do. So I read some insane amount of the new science by Gian Battista Vico, which is this, <laughs> probably I read something close to 160 pages and then skimmed another uh, 150. And I mean, it's almost impenetrable. <laughs> There's there it's it, like I would like so just I think that it's full of really interesting insights that are presented in such a way that it's very difficult to fish them out of the muddle that he created with his pen. And look, I get it. Um, I think he was sort of one. He he was kind of really struggling with some really profound ideas. And so the translation into serviceable exposition was somewhat compromised. Is a I think uh, a kind of charitable way of putting it, but I think largely correct way of putting it. But um, it, yeah, I'm not sure I want to say anything about it. Although he's got. I, I don't think actually one of the reasons I wanted to repodcast is that I said in the in the the prior podcast earlier this morning um, earlier today comma this morning um, I said that you know he almost suggests that if you change the language then you bring things into existence and I don't think that's what he said after reading another 100 pages. <laughs> he, he, I don't think he believes that Zeus existed because somebody had a heroic, poetic language, right? Um, that would be a theological poetic, and then there's a heroic poetic. And, you know, I don't think that that's what he meant. I don't think he had some sort of magical strain like that. Uh, he was... But he's saying something that's very, that brushes up, sort of abuts that idea, as it were. He's saying that um, it's impossible for us to achieve. This is something that, by the way, I'm going to just cut my thought here for a second and interject this. But this is something that would just drive the modern mind nuts, the secular mind nuts. This is something that would elicit an audible scoff from someone like Sam Harris. And I use Sam Harris all the time because he's one of the only people I listen to externally on podcasting. And I generally, one of his great virtues is he just brings in fantastic guests. So his, his you know, the people that he brings in are really, generally really interesting to listen to. So it's not that I'm listening to Sam Harris give an account of his own ideas constantly. 
I'm listening to interesting people that he can select because he has an influential podcast and a discernment, as it were, about who he invites on. And he better invite me on at some point because Harvard sent him my book. Um, back to the idea that what he's saying is that by the standard of a sort of what he calls a common vernacular language, which is actually the philosopher's reason. Like it's, it's the language of just reason, basically. It's what we would call like correct thinking and, spe and correct speech. By those standards, we would not accord much value at all to, you know, uh, poetic speech because it would introduce ideas that we would immediately take issue with. Like Jove, for instance, or the idea that there were giant people running around. I still don't understand, by the way. So just, I'm gonna keep making asides here. Um, actually, there was a giant flood. So I'm listening to this show on one of these National Geographic channels, I have all this educational type programming on my TV so I can continue to, you know, torture my brain with ideas while I'm trying to relax. But it's well established that Indonesia was all at one point a giant uh, continent before the Ice Age or after the Ice Age. I can't remember now. Well, the sea levels rose fantastically somewhere around 20,000 years ago. And they created all the, you know, how you have that archipelago look for Indonesia. Um, right, you have these islands now all over the place. Java is one and so on. That used to be one huge landmass called Sundan or something, S-U-N. Well, it was a it was a continent basically. That entire area that now is just is just spotted with islands that go all the way down and almost join with Australia. That actually was just a huge landmass, um, and when the sea levels rose, however much they rose, I think it was something like four hundred feet. Well, you can imagine how much stuff is going to go underwater if the sea rises 400 feet. So I think I'm like right now I'm in Bryan, Texas, which it, it's, it's, it would strain credul it would strain the imagination to believe that this place could be underwater. Um, I mean, and we're 150 miles to the Gulf of Mexico. And, but if the sea level rose 400 feet, I think we're at 300 something elevation right now. So I'd be 100 feet underwater, which means most of Texas would be underwater, which means you wouldn't, until you got to roughly the Rocky Mountains, everything would be underwater, basically. <laughs> and that's basically what happened. Like that actually is, that's not, that has nothing to do with mythology, although in every single myth, they, the myth mentions, refers to this great universal flood. 
I think that's that's just that's because people were around. I don't know how it got recorded though. Um, you know, I don't know how language. I don't think Vico knows either how language was able to preserve that. It must have been recorded by oral tradition for generations, like the flood. People remembered the flood. It would be difficult to forget that if suddenly like huge civilizations were underwater. And by the way, he mentions the lost city of Atlantis. And there's a, there's a discussion about the fact that that was actually buried underwater. Very little, contrary to this idea that we've mapped out the entire globe with technology, very little of the ocean has actually been exhaustively plumbed. And so, you know, who knows? But there, I don't think there's anything supernatural about this. I'm saying that you know, all of this stuff is possible. We just don't know what was going on 20,000 years ago. But we know there was a universal flood and all of the myth makers, all of the mythology in from Egypt to uh, Assyria, Phoenicians. There's all these different, right, the the all the Mesopotamia, all that, they all have this like mythology of this flood. So, but he, what he was saying was that they used a different language and he has all this textual evidence. Homer keeps referring to the language before the one that they're using, not a different language, but chronologically before. And, um, and he, you know, so, this other language was uh, basically, it was not a language that we would recognize. If we recognize, it's almost like I want to invoke Wittgenstein's idea that if a lion could talk, you wouldn't know what it was saying. It's almost like that. Like this poetic language basically saw in its first iteration, as it were, it basically saw the natural world as a kind of moving force. And we just ridicule this now. Like we just, we go immediately from that idea to what a bunch of yahoos, right? But he is saying the opposite. He's saying, now this is what would piss off everybody today, right? He's saying that what, no, he's saying the opposite. He's saying that we have lost that, that there was a trade-off between that imaginative openness that is like this huge kind of creative power of the mind, right? To kind of just be immersed in wonder and then to actually like have, develop a language that sort of continues to capture that wonder so that your imaginative faculty, as it were, is kept sort of wide open. <laughs> and he's saying that, no, he's not saying what secular people would say now, which is, you know, thank gosh, I'm so glad that we don't, we're not so dumb as to, you know, believe all this bullshit. It's the opposite. He's saying like, well, unfortunately, we don't have that capacity anymore. In fact, he says it's impossible to actually put yourself back. There's a tension because he also thinks that it gets complicated. I've been trying to piece him together and it's not easy. Um, I even sent a message to my chair of back in my philosophy days at the University of Texas at Austin, the chair of my dissertation committee was a philosopher. Um, and 
a logician and a philosopher, but not a computer scientist. There were there was another person on my committee who was the chair of the computer science department there, et cetera, but he would have no clue what I was talking about. So I sent it to my chair and asked him about Vico and nobody does Vico. And, but Vico is done. Vico is studied and taken seriously, but it's a very small pocket. It's sort of like people who study, um, you know, specialize in American pragmatism between the you know, years 1870 and 1930 or something. Like somebody that's like an expert on John Dewey or something. It's not particularly like really mainstream canon stuff. Um, it's not like studying Quine or, you know, Russell or what have you. Um, so it's hard to piece him together. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is he says that Unlike, so we have this idea that if we, if we study nature, like we can have really, really um, accurate knowledge about the natural world because it's amenable to observation and it's amenable to um, our science and a lot of it maps on to mathematics, right? Like so a Fibonacci number actually applies to you know, patterns and sunflower seeds and so on. Like there's all this like material, you know, all this mechanism that we can use with modern science to really squeeze information out of the natural world. But he says, on the contrary, we always have more knowledge about that which we make. And so we actually have, can gather a bigger picture of human history than we can of the scientific study of the world. And I think he, was, he wasn't saying this in the 14th century, he was saying this when Galileo had already published and so on, and he was aware of the movements of science. He was saying this in the Enlightenment period. And he was well aware, he was a professor. He was not like some random strange guy writing in a cave, like he was a very accomplished and learned, learned professor. So he was, all, he was obviously aware of uh, certainly Copernicus and Galileo and probably Newton, although I haven't really checked the timeline. He was right in that area. And um, he, uh, you know, like he nonetheless maintained that it's history that we have more epistemic connection to than anything we can ever do studying the natural world because we didn't make the natural world. So anything we have, anything we make actually we have a natural connection to and so we can recover our history and knowledge but not and this is why it gets confusing so you would think from that you would be able to take on you would get be able to have some really intimate knowledge of this imaginative poetic language but he says no on the contrary when you switch the language this is kind of very wittgensteinian by the way when you switch the language you cannot put yourself or project yourself imaginatively back into that mode of thinking. You can recognize it objectively, however. That's the difference. Um, okay. So, um, what's the takeaway? Okay, well, the language, I cannot recover this from the text by the way. Um, 
And by the way, I email. I emailed. He's. I. Uh, he's at. I want to say Cornell. Uh, I want to say Cornell, but I emailed the guy who, if you Google like the world's leading authority on Gian Battista Vico, this guy teaching at uh, Cornell, I think, comes up, and he's actually like eighty years old now, and he's Italian, and he he reads Vico in Italian and English, and he's like he's like the he's written all these books about Vico. And by the way, one, one thing that's really interesting to me is like, I think one of the greatest English writers was in the English language. He was obviously, he was Irish. James Joyce was obsessed with Vico. And so you'll see allusions and references to Vico in Ulysses, one of the great, novels, uh, you know, really written in the English language of all time, written in the, well, I think it was written in the 1940s. Well, anyway, I read it twice. <laughs> I was obsessed with Joyce, as, as I suppose Joyce was obsessed with Vico. <laughs> and um, there's all kinds of allusions to Vico in, in Ulysses. And it's, it's equally incomprehensible. So I think they're like partners in crime. Um, but my point being that this professor, I don't remember his name now. He was, he, he wrote, he wrote, Otzel wrote a book about uh, Vico and Joyce, right? Like, so the connection between Vico and Joyce, which I think would be really interesting reading, but a little too far afield for my purposes. I have a chapter in my book called Vico's Question. And so what's Vico's Question? Um, so here's how so the, here's how this works. The language changes. We we tend to think of language as being adopted and that, you know and changing over time but it kind of evolving over time, right? But he's saying like there we have these like actually these sort of like leaps, these qualitative s steps where the language like took on an entirely different characteristic and it reflected the cognitive or sort of imaginative I think um, you know uh, circumstances that the language users found themselves in which you know and we're talking about over like centuries and centuries and centuries so you certainly have the evolution of right like you have like English obviously evolved out of very slowly accreted, you know, through Germanic and other Romance languages, and we ended up, you know, you ended up with this kind of grab bag thing called English, and so that's all true, and I don't think he disputes that. And there's also this idea that every every, like, different peoples have different languages, which is very true. I mean, I've been all over Europe. I've been to, I think, in total, thirty five countries, and I can tell you, if you change countries, you typically change languages. Um, I mean, you have this lingua franca, which sometimes works in Western Europe, which is English, and then it doesn't really work in Eastern Europe. They kind of don't know English. Um, so, which is a, really just a failure of their education system. They have a bunch of, you know, despotic. Well, actually, I was there before Zelensky. Zelensky was 
right after I left Ukraine, Zelensky was actually uh, voted in. Um, so, so he makes this big, huge claim about language and how you move into, like, as you, you move out of poetic language, you lose this imaginative faculty. And then you spend a lot of resources trying to figure out how to get it back. But at that point, your language is working against you. So by the time you have a, a, a real dominance of what we consider to be philosophical thinking, which is essentially, to put it in a kind of like crude way, I mean, you can, I can, we can say this any way you want, but really it's slicing and dicing concepts, right? So there's one thing that people always fail to notice about philosophy that Plato and Aristotle certainly were well aware of, which is that the, the philosophical game is not a game of positive imagination. In other words, you never posit really anything. Um, and the things that are posited are very abstract, right? So, yeah, I mean, like Husserl, um, the phenomenologist, I thought, you know, I think I'm just grabbing him out of a, a long list of people who have, you know, of philosophers in the Western tradition, posits this kind of, you know, unity of something, which is a kind of point, an abstract point underlying phenomenology, right? It's like, well, what is it? You know, it's not, it's not Jove. Like, Jove is the, the first god, according to Vico. And Jove, like, had these, like, really abrupt and powerful characteristics because he was described in the la in a, this in this uh poetic language well by the time you get to a philosophical way of understanding the world all that imagination all of that connection basically to re that raw connection to reality is just lost and so it's very difficult basically and it's very difficult to recapture because you you actually lost the resources to talk about it to refer to it right we can, of course, you know, have, we, we can make the idea of Jove and then imagine some guy beating his chest and hearing thunder and seeing lightning and saying, Jove, you know? I mean, of course, we can create a cartoon image of all that stuff using our current language, our linguistic resources today. But Vico's point is that you can't actually understand what the F he was really doing. Right? Because we've actually lost. We actually, we have a, we have palliated. We have, um, this, what's the word? Um, vitiated the imaginative game. The imaginative resources that we had have been vitiated and in no small part because of the change in language to favor the ability to, uh, do things like count votes and tell somebody else they're crazy because they believe X and you should believe Y and here's Y and let's suppose you believed X, what follows and so on. And this is the game that Plato and Aristotle were playing. And they were well aware that this, this was not an imaginative, uh, that the strong suit of this, this particular, and I'm going to just adopt later Wittgenstein for, for exposition purposes, 
they were well aware that this particular language game that they were playing called philosophy was a poor substitute for Homeric, uh, you know, for ancient Greek, you know, heroic speech. But so Plato, of course, famously tried to sneak that in in his tripartite version of the soul. And then later Freud called that the, uh, the id. And so, you know, we keep coming up with different abstractions for it, but nobody can actually put themselves. That's something that I think is quite interesting and how that connects to the book. Well, there's a few, there's a few connecting the dots will require a bit of a archipelago itself. I would say, well, I would say it works somewhat like this. Um, one of the problems is that we've further vitiated even a kind of, you know, initially, like, we've further vitiated speech with modern technology, right? So this idea that we can, that language evolves, it also, the, the idea that it changes, there's no, there's no sort of built-in premise that it's always getting better, Right. And so it's not clear that what we're losing to be able to do and say and think now, but certainly most of the counterculture surrounding the modern web, which is the story of the 21st century, is a complaint about language, actually. And, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's some... And see, what I need to do in a trade publication is not write a dissertation on, you know, the application of Vico's ideas to the... 21st century is to point the reader in a direction that he or she may simply not have thought of at all before. And that's one way out of the trap is to actually start considering alternatives that are, that are, that have a certain, um, you know, depth to them as it were. Um, so that's one idea that I think is quite valuable. The second idea is even more interesting, which <laughs> I just went through all five of his books in The New Science, and I, all I could find were very sparse and, in essence, oblique references to this um, return. But he has an entire, actually, he has an entire book on things that are returning. And most of it is how um, ancient Greece... Actually, there were there were customs and law and all social customs uh, that were actually revisited a thousand years later in Europe, and so that a lot of what he's saying has okay. So it's not this simple. Um, a lot of what he's saying is a reference to the dissolution of the Western. Well, eventually the Byzantium as well, but like the the, the Roman Empire, the dis, the dissolution of the Roman Empire and whatever that was, five hundred A.D. roughly something, um, and then there was an actual return, and I think this is probably true that that there there that actually the progress that was made in the Roman Empire, which you know going all the way back to whatever it was nine hundred B.C. or something. They could, I think, 700 BC. They date it. Um, ask, ask, uh, um, Mary Beard. 
at Oxford. She's the definitive Roman scholar. I don't know how they date it. Um, it's something like that, though, because I actually read SP, SPQR, uh, most of it, A History of Ancient Rome. Um, so most of this, the progress that the Roman Empire had made, at least we think of it as progress, actually just recurred again in the, the years from 500 to 1500. So you had a thousand years of progress and then you had a thousand years of retracing re the steps from fi roughly 500 to 1500. And then you have, now we have another thousand years of progress from 1500. I doubt it. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I think if we're going in spirals, the spirals are getting smaller. Once around is getting uh, smaller terms of chronology. In other words, the years before the recurrence, I suspect, is um, diminishing. <laughs> so, um, but so this idea is very difficult to, to unearth from the new science, but it's an extremely powerful idea because I think one of the limitations to current thought is the almost knee-jerk um, you know, idea about history, which is that it has a linear progression, a very simple linear progression. And I think that that's bootstrapped from looking at simple cases of technology and then extrapolating them to basically all areas, every aspect of, the, of human life. And I think that's just not true. That's not certainly what's going on. It's, for me, it's vastly more plausible that, we, that there is something going on that involves a return back. Um, I think like that pattern actually is almost like a natural pattern in nature, right? Like where you have a, there's a kind of, um, it's like piling sand on like the, you know, right? Like, so if you go to like, go to Perbach, P-E-R-B-A-K, the scientist, like, so if you put grains of sand onto a pile of sand, you keep getting it, building it up, Deep, bigger and bigger, but by virtue of building it up, you're creating a gravitational uh, tension, right? So it eventually it all comes crashing down, and then you can start piling it up again. This is also captured in the myth of Sisyphus and so on. But I don't, I don't think of this, and of course Nietzsche talked about the eternal recurrence, but I don't think of this, Nietzsche was posing that as a nihilism and then positing the heroic character as one who could, in spite of the meaninglessness of an eternal recurrence in an infinite universe. And by the way, for listeners who don't know a lot about philosophy, yeah, sorry, you're kind of fucked with this podcast because I'm trying to get these ideas out and I don't have time to do one-on-one stuff. And I'm not trying to say that in an arrogant way. I'm just saying like, I'm not, I can't connect all the dots for everyone. You kind of have to know what's happening with philosophy. Uh, a little bit. So Nietzsche just very quickly said, look, if there's an infinite universe, then you basically all combinations of atoms will eventually repeat. Even if it takes, you know, a hundred trillion years, you'll eventually end up right back where you started. And I, th I suppose if it's infinite, it just never ends, then you'll just end up again somewhere. You'll have destruction and then recreation and there's something like that. It, he used that actually as a device, as a as a kind of um, philosophical device to get at this idea that if there was something like a, an eternal recurrence, um, how it would be so difficult to believe 
in anything that you were doing because for all the effort you put in, you would eventually, and everyone around you and all of the world and civilization would end up back at the beginning of your efforts. And so there's a sense in which that's certainly, um, for him, that was, that was the ultimate challenge to the Ubermensch was this idea that it doesn't matter that you, you know, it, 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 ultimately there's no meaning in the Ubermensch because all of the struggling to overcome the weaknesses, um, et cetera, et cetera, amounts to not, right? And, and um, that's not what I mean. That's not why I find him Vico interesting. So Vico has the notion, I, so there's also a debate about this, but most people do not take him to be saying something like what Nietzsche said. And that would be an anachronism. He was speaking before Nietzsche. Um, but most people take him to be saying something like, um, you're, the, the culture will inevitably reach a point where it then starts to decline and then it gets reconstituted. And so you get something like a spiral rather than a circle, right? So in a spiral, you go around, but like, you know, the slides, remember when we were all kids, assuming, okay, um, assuming I'm thinking all my small number of listeners are roughly my age. You go down the slide and it's a spiral. Well, you're getting somewhere. You're going around in a circle, like a water slide, you know, that goes into the pool. You're actually moving somewhere, but you're not going straight down like a slide, right? And it's a much more circuitous and complicated route and there's more things that can go wrong. And I think that's a message that we need today. People who assume without, really without thinking, that we that history moves according to a simple linear model are oversimplifying the effort we need to put in to make the world what it needs to be made like what you know what we want it to be and there are certain times that we simply probably can't avoid to backtrack or backstep or go backwards that in other words, we're going to find ourselves in a, you know, we're going to find ourselves in a mess <laughs> and then we won't be able to clean it up before a lot of damage is done. I think that's probably where we're at now. So there's no way to kind of say, oh, we'll just have a few discussions, we'll change a few things and then we're just on our way back to the classic Roman era where everything, you know, from, you know, everything was invented like, you know, every form of government, like every damn idea that ever, like, was, like, there's so much to, you know, to be said about the, the classic era. Um, you know, it's probably not the case that we can, there's a simple fix to what's going on right now, and it probably maybe things are going to get worse before they get better. That would be Vico. That's something that he's saying. Like, so we're on a spiral, and it's complicated. We're not on a slide. Um, and that means that we need to look at history with an expanded model so that we can properly assess what's going on. And I think that's a very helpful thought. At least I'm going to pose that thought
Um, you know, in this way, like I'm trying to deconstruct, not in the Derrida sense, well, sort of, um, I'm trying to deconstruct the set of ideas that got us here. And most of the fight I'm going to pick is with the technocrat AI futurist who has a little Snoopy's lunchbox full of ideas and none of them are adequate to account for what's happening. And so I got in order to deconstruct that, I need some ammunition. And so I have to go back to uh, Vico because if I say it, well, <laughs> you know, how about this, this guy wrote about it and, and James Joyce thought he was, you know, the great inspiration for all of English literature. And he's been, you know, debated by philosophers for the last 400 years. It's a little bit better than me just saying, you know, the simple linear model. So anyway, enough of that. That's what I have to say. And I wanted to get into a whole nother set of stuff, but that's, well, I suppose I can do an extended podcast and then I've got to stop this. Um, yeah, so here's a paradox that I had never occurred to me until today. Um, I don't think this has necessarily even been talked about, but the... So one, it's very hard to talk about this as well because be sort of if like any hint of saying there's something wrong with democracy usually has all kinds of weird, you know, scolding, wrap, get your hands wrapped with a ruler consequences. Um, well, that's a that's unfortunate, by the way, that you can't. Everybody, I suggest everybody go watch. Actually, better read 1984 by George Orwell before you start casting aspersions on everyone for thinking. <laughs> um, so here's a problem. It's one reason why I don't like utilitarianism. Uh, although I'm not as... This is funny because that's usually associated with consequentialism, and consequentialism I find to be tracking a lot of truth, although a lot of, I think, what happens is we do it in spite of consequences. And then you have this, this idea, well, you don't, you don't have a properly, if you expanded your idea of the consequences, then consequentialism would catch your idea, like saving somebody in spite of the fact, well, perform, performing heroic acts, you know, like, uh, but I don't think, I think that becomes a vacuous thesis at some point. So if you expand consequentialism out so far that it, it can cover cases where you do something in spite of the consequences, but then you kind of cover that with consequentialism, consequentialism just becomes an empty word that you're using to cover all of morality. So I actually don't think consequentialism is the whole story, but I certainly don't think that counting up pleasures and pains is, I mean, that, that, that to me is just one of the biggest fool, foolish games John, John Stuart Mill or Bentham, for that matter, you know, for all their brilliance, that kind of thing, try, you're trying too hard to be, science, quote, scientific. Like, that's just bullshit, right? And I can't get into that. That would take us into a whole different thing. But um, that's not how it works, actually. People don't do things for to maximize 
That's not at all how you're going to get, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Um, so, but one of the problems is, is that you do a reduction when you go, anytime you start counting something, there's an implicit reduction of qualitative properties. This is something that Galileo knew really well. So he would say there are primary uh, qualities and there are secondary qualities and the primary qualities are actually like things like immediate sense data, like that thing is green. And then the secondary, I believe this is correct. I hope I don't have it inverted, but anyway, he made a distinction between the two qualities. And so he said that the counting and the geometry and all that stuff was not primary, but you know, it's the way that you could track it across in some, you know, across time. And so that was more important scientifically, but it's not going to capture it sort of, you know, the thing in itself. Das Dingens, was that Das, Das Dingensick? The German for Kant called it the thing in itself. Um, and so like there's an implicit, there's, a, there's an, always a kind of, there's always a sort of threat, lurking threat when you count something that you're going to leave something out because it's, it's, it's sort of inescapably reductionistic. And so like, but that is a democracy, right? It's to say, so a democracy is always put in terms of rights because it, it was the answer to monarch, monarchy, right? And so when you, have, when you have a king and you have a bunch of disgruntled people, this is where the French Revolution is really interesting to study, people strive, like, like I've got to figure out a way to get rid of the king. And how do I do that? Because you have this divine right of kings. And so first you have to say like, there is no damn divine, divine right of kings. Like that doesn't exist. You just made that up. And then secondly, the bloodline doesn't have anything to do, like those two are connected. So the bloodline doesn't have anything to do with and so somebody at some point said, like, why should you have privileges that I don't have? Which is actually on the face of it just a ridiculous idea. People have privileges that I don't have all the time. <laughs> like, uh, why did, like, that's, it, on the face of it, that's a stupid idea. Like a cop, a, a police officer has privileges that I don't have. Why do I, why don't I just go march on that, march down the street about that? It's like, yeah, we, like we live in an unequal world all the time. Like that's just normal. And, you know, but in the case of government, it was finally arrived at that we've got to get rid of the king. And certainly in two revolutions, first the American Revolution and then the French Revolution, that was done. And the rest of the world roughly followed. And, and so the idea was, how do you do that? And I think there's basically three ways in the entire history of thought, uh, there's basically three ways to get to get somebody in thrown like to get somebody in charge to right to get a, you need a leader which i suppose you would you know politically it's going to be you know, take your pick president prime minister etc um you do it by i think blood which is war. So the, to the victor go the spoils, right? Like that's the oldest way it was done. Although there are people who have alternative histories of that. Um, 
the late Yale anthropologist, I'm blanking on his name, uh, thought there, were there was probably a lot of experimentation in government way back when. But we like the the the, the standard party line is that the, it was by blood at first. Like you just yeah, whoever wins the war uh, is in charge. Um, the second would be, and that they're are closely related, would be blood. Would be uh, family. I should have used something other than blood by sword. Because, okay, sword is the war. And then the second one would be by blood, which is family. And that's, those actually always go hand in hand. So I don't think people realize this, but the, the, all the lines of, of, of uh, monarchical lines, right? So, you know, like Charlemagne, it goes up through, um, you know, who, that, in France, it goes back to, Clovis, I think, right? And then, you know, like, the, um, I forget the one for the British, but the Germanic and then the, the French and, and the English and all that. Like, you have these really, really long, the Carolingians and the, I'm really, like, grabbing into some, I haven't studied this in a long time. Um, but the Carolingians, right, like, so they have these bloodlines, right? And and so the the idea just that, Okay, like I have the right to rule because I am the descendant of so on and so forth. And actually that's also sword driven. And so the line of kings was established by war. And the the all the aristocracy is established by the willingness to fight. So what it used to just mean, I don't think people realize this about aristocracy. We have this idea of aristocracy being these like, you know, pathetic, uh, you know, powdered wig jackasses that don't do anything. And certainly there was that. But the idea of aristocracy is based on the idea that I'm willing to pick up a sword and go fight and you're not. So I have privileges. Right. And now look at it like, right. Like, so we still have a sort of reverence for the military, but in general, they're the sort of blue collar, you know, plebs that, you know, it's not generally, we don't generally think of them as, uh, they don't have a connection to like ruling over everything anymore. Right. They've been subordinated, very, very effectively subordinated. Um, but that it didn't, it, that didn't used to be the case, right? So they were always willing to fight. And by the way, even in France at the time of the revolution and before King Louis the 16th and the 15th, the 14th, they, the, um, you could actually, if you were willing to fight, you could actually, um, get awarded a title, an aristocratic title because the idea was anybody who's willing to die has a quality about them called courage, <laughs> which it's sort of hard to ignore that as a fact. Like, I, you know, I'm not really interested in going out and proving that I, I, I don't want to get this land grant because I'm willing to go fight some war because, you know, I don't want to get my head chopped off. Uh, so there is a certain element of courage there. And, um, that's how that all that stuff worked. It was all connected to warriors. And um, so that's what you have. So you have 
sword, blood, and then there's the final thing you can do. There's two more possibilities, but it collapses into three. So the third thing you can do is the solution that the Western world, the intellectuals, effectively, the philosophies in France and the American intellectuals came up with, which was, why don't we just count? And this gets cast as everybody should have an equal right. We just invented this thing called rights, right? It actually inheres in the Judeo-Christian worldview, sorry to say, for all the you know, secularists out there, the idea that you have this right is, uh, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that it was originally the, the idea of a right is that, you know, everybody has, everybody created is created equally in the eyes of God. Like that's actually, like it's very, very good textual evidence that that's where that came from. Um, but you know, it's lost its religious significance. And now we just have these weird doppelganger, like these dangling philosophical concepts called rights. And rights, they just, they don't exist. They don't mean anything. They're just posited to get rid of the king. That's what I'm suggesting. In fact, that's really the way it is. Like, that's the history of it. Like, okay, so what's a right? Where is that in the universe? In my ontology, where is a right? There is no right. It's a way of getting rid of the king because it's saying... You don't get to be on the throne either by sword or by blood. We're going to say everybody has an equal right. And then you count. And because everybody's equal, the larger number wins. It's usually posited that way. And so people focus on this idea that, yeah, why should you have privileges? Not recognizing that basically everybody has more privileges than someone else in some context. I mean, it just happens all the time. You can't get anywhere in the modern world without seeing people with more privileges than you and you with more than other people. Um, so we certainly have not, like, <laughs> that's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a much more tenuous idea than people give it credit, um, that people assume. But, okay, so you have this right, and then you got to count. Because if everybody has an equal thing, you, there's nothing, there's no primary equality to grab onto. You're not, it's not because you're smarter. It's not because you have more money. It's not that, you know, it's because, well, you, you, more people around, you know, the people, all the, all the people in this nation state, you know, the, we all counted it up and everybody wanted you and not this guy. And so, or gal, or they, um, what they don't say and what I'm worried about is the rights talk sucks up all the air out of the room. And in the meantime, we have an implicit reduction of the person to something that which can be counted. And what that which can be counted is Galileo's idea of it's not the primary quality like your virtue or your vice or your this or your that or your worthiness or anything. It's just that which can be counted can be put on a, you know, equal playing field as it were, or in mathematical terms can be put in the same space, right, as a point on a line. And so, or what have you. Um, well, that's usually how you count the natural numbers, but I'm not going to get into that as points on a line. Um, and so did we make a kind of deal with the devil, a kind of Faustian bargain that's, that we put our individuality at odds 
in, by virtue of getting rid of the king. So now we have a democracy, we focus on the rights, but we don't focus on the implicit reduction to numerical, right, to the counting. So you can't have a democracy without the counting and you treat everybody the same. Is that in tension with this kind of really vital idea of an individual? It's probably yes, would be my guess. So does democracy have within it a kind of ticking time bomb? Well, maybe yes. Well, then what do we do? I don't know. There's a fourth possibility, but I don't think it holds. Plato's idea was like, we should have the philosophers, the philosopher kings, we should have the philosophers rule because they're the ones with the most wisdom. There's one really big problem with this, <laughs> which anybody who thinks philosophically for more than two seconds is going to get it, which is how do we know who has more wisdom? <laughs> how are we going to figure that out? Why don't I just say I have all the wisdom that's ever been had? Therefore, and then, you know, the guy next to me or the, or the, you know, whoever next to me says, well, no, I do. Well, how do you decide? By sword, by blood, or by count? So I don't think you can get that off the ground without reducing, without returning. And so, you know, I don't know. You can't do anything with this for the book, frankly, because you'd have to be the most brilliant writer in the world to figure out a way to criticize democracy and not get, you know, fire hosed with, you know, or canceled or whatever the fuck would happen. Excuse my language. You, you just can't bring that up because it's one of the sacrosanct things, you know, ideas in the modern world. Um, and by the way, for those who feel as if they can turn a blind eye to history, Right? Like there's this general idea in modern culture that why we study things in the past. It's like, where do you think you got this idea that you have all these rights? Right? Like they just like that you're just born into this world and like you don't like it would be very, very foolish not to go and trace back these ideas. But what the reason this idea is so is so untouchable, frankly, is that getting rid of the king is one of the great perceived accomplishments of the of the modern world, right? That's one of the great, I mean, the enlightenment, if not, the enlightenment of nothing else was the, was the supremacy of science over superstition. At least that's what that was. Well, I think there's, that's basically true by the way, but like, at least that's how it was sold. And it was the triumph of, uh, human rights over, uh, over despotism or, you know, democracy over monarchy. And so you simply can't, mess with that idea. But what if the idea itself has a, a certain ineliminable weakness? And when put into a modern technological framework, frankly, it starts to strain. Uh, I think that's, ex I think that's actually probably something that's going on right now, right? So, um, I don't know what to do about that necessarily, but I think it's interesting to think about that. So how you have to put it to avoid getting in like, you know, getting tarred and feathered is you have to say, I suppose this will be my last thing. By Jove. Um, you have to say the technological circumstances we have we find ourselves in
are pulling viciously at the strings of the democracy that we desperately need to keep the world together. But one of the premises in that is what I'm suggesting is, is that it was inevitable that the technological circumstances we found ourselves in were going to start to unravel the democracy we desperately need. <laughs> That's what I'm suggesting. So which way of the horn of this dilemma do you want to go? Do you want to revisit the idea of democracy itself? Well, good luck with that. That's, uh, that's going to be a tough one. Um, or you've got to change the technology to preserve the agreed upon ideas. I suppose I'll leave it at that.